Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Aika Rotz, Associate Professor of Japan Studies at the University of Oslo, to discuss heritage making in Japan, examining how the process of heritageization can secularize and politicize religious sites, such as Shinto shrines and natural areas of religious significance to Okinawan and Ainu communities, as well as the role of nationalism within heritage. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Eka. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Uh, yes. So, my name is um, uh, Eike Ross. I'm an associate professor at University of Oslo, and I work here. Um, I work on Muslim contemporary religion in Japan, also comparatively Japan, Vietnam, Okinawa. So, my research has always sort of been within, partly within religious studies, and then within Japanese studies or more broadly Asian studies, and also using methods and theories from, from anthropology, and especially interested in environmental issues and then the relations between environment, ritual practices, and, and politics. So, my, my PhD research was on contemporary Shinto. Shinto in contemporary Japan, and especially notions of Shinto as a nature religion and related practices, nature conservation practices, tree planting, and so on. And this was the, the also then topic of my first monograph, which is uh, titled Shinto Nature and Ideology in Contemporary Japan, and they came out in 2017. And so recently, I've done more work on heritage, which is what we'll talk about today, but heritage in relation to contemporary religion, and also uh, ritual practices, environmental change. So my current research project looks at popular religion and, and, and environmental change. Great. So let's begin by clarifying for our listeners what heritage and, by extension, world heritage is. Could you give us a brief definition of heritage and the goals of UNESCO through world heritage? Yeah, so UNESCO distinguishes between heritage sites or world heritage sites and intangible cultural heritage, which is more like practices. And the World Heritage List, they have a number of criteria for these, and a site has to be of outstanding universal value in order to be included on this list. And of course, that's how, I mean, how are you going to decide this? And this is something that has changed quite significantly since the first establishment of UNESCO, the World Heritage List in the 1970s, and mostly European historic sites, buildings, ruins, and then later also came to include other sites, natural sites. And Japan has ratified this or ratified the, the, the UNESCO World Heritage List in the 1990s and has since also got several sites uh, listed. And that is more than sort of what was originally included, but also then includes anything from sacred groves to modern industrial heritage, like old factories and so on. So what counts as outstanding universal value, that's something that's heavily debated by scholars, but also by heritage experts. In practice, it's the case that member states, like UN member states, they have to apply. So they basically nominate sites and they have to apply, and then it has to be approved by the advisory bodies of UNESCO 
which is uh, ICOMOS for cultural sites or IUCN for natural sites, right? But then in addition, there is this intangible cultural heritage list, which functions a bit differently in the sense that outstanding universal value is not uh, required there, but it's called representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. And then that can include anything from food, national cuisine, to languages, to very often uh, performing arts, crafts, but also interestingly, ritual practices like festival traditions and so on. And here, this representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity, as it's called, so intangible cultural heritage is something that has really grown and become popularized globally in the last 15 years or so. And Japan has been very active in this. So heritage functions also on a domestic level. It functions locally. There are provincial heritage lists, then there are the national lists, and then there's UNESCO for the, for the international. But it's a category that has been very successfully universalized in the last couple of decades. So, so you find heritage conservation law or preservation, heritage preservation law and uh, preservation initiatives throughout the world. Thanks for that. So through your sacred heritage projects in which you participated, you've explored the relationship between Buddhist and Shinto sites with heritage status in Japan. Could you explain for us what it means when these sites undergo heritageization? Yes. Well, so we had uh, we had this project, uh, Sacred Heritage in Japan, and also have published an edited volume, which this is edited volume came out last year 2020 and it's edited uh by mark tierwin my colleague mark tierwin uh, together with me and uh, we have a, a a number of chapters there that are written by contributors that look at different case studies and some of these case studies are particular sacred sites some of these are buddhist or shinto but actually my own research my own chapter in the edited volume looks at a sacred grove in Okinawa that's neither Shinto nor Buddhist. So that's an Okinawan sacred site going back to the time of the Ryukyu kingdom. And also one of the chapters addresses the Mozufuruchi tumulus clusters, like these old imperial tombs. These are not shrines or temples either, right? So they're sacred sites, but they're not necessarily shrines or temples. So the, the chapters, they project from different angles, but they ask the question, what happened to these sites when they are listed as heritage, or uh, how are they used politically as well. And then we had a couple of cases that looked not so much as sites, but rather as ritual practices, like a local uh, festival tradition that then becomes UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage, and to what extent the participants in this ritual, how this leads them to rethink what they're doing and maybe also change some some of the practices. And then we had some cases of sites that were not listed as heritage by UNESCO, but more on a local level, and also some that failed to get uh, listed. So it's rather sort of a diverse collection of case studies, but all focusing primarily on, on, on Japanese cases. Now, in relation to your question, what does it mean to undergo heritageization, right? It's a bit of an ugly term, perhaps, in the sense that the term heritageization in itself doesn't say so much about who are the actors involved in the process. But basically what it refers to is the reconfiguration of places or practices or both 
as heritage. And that's both a legal process, but very often it can also have physical and practical consequences. In the introduction to the edited volume, we actually use the term heritage making to stress that there are some actors involved who are doing this. But the argument is that by classifying sites and practices as heritage, and then the expectations, the possibilities, but also the challenges that that come about uh, sort of as a result of this process, that this is something that has happened or that has acquired new significance, global significance in recent years, and that this leads actually to the real transformation of sites and practices. So religious sites in Japan have taken center stage of its heritage image with such sites as Mount Fuji, Itsukushima Shrine with its floating Tori Gate and the entire temple city of Kyoto to name a few. What has been the impact on these sites as a result of heritage status, particularly in regards to their function as religious sites and how are they perceived by society? Yeah, to what extent heritage status or especially UNESCO World Heritage status affects the places in question, this is actually something that differs uh, very much from place to place. So there are quite many, you mentioned Buddhist temples in Kyoto or in Nara. These are already firmly established as tourist sites, at least domestically, before they were listed as UNESCO World Heritage Sites, right? But there are also many of these Buddhist temples, they're also functioning religious institutions. And for them, it's not necessarily very important. For the institutional actors, it's not necessarily very important that they have this there's World Heritage status. Um, but there are also examples of sites where the heritage status, and not the fact that they became World Heritage per se, but rather the ways in which local, municipal, prefectural authorities then use that World Heritage status uh, for branding purposes, for tourist branding, for example, that has led to massive changes. I, I mentioned that, that example of uh, the, the case study that I wrote about, which is Seifa Utaki in Okinawa. Now, that was a a site that was, as I said, this is a sacred grove that that goes back to the time of the the, uh, Ryukyu kingdom, and people come there to perform rituals, right, and to worship uh, local Okinawan deities. What happened, that site was listed uh, as World Heritage together with several other sites of the Ryukyu kingdom. Uh, Shuri Castle being the most famous one, but also many several other castle uh, remnants, Gusuku sites. What has happened there, uh, not immediately after its listing as World Heritage uh, in, in 2000, but several years later, is that municipal authorities really started promoting, and not just the, the municipality, but also tourist agencies and so on, really started promoting these sites as major tourist destinations. They were covered in guidebooks, in magazines, in travel uh, programs, and so on. And the number of tourists increased very dramatically. And this has led, as I I described this in more detail in the chapter, but this has led to ecological problems in the forest. It has given rise to tensions because Okinawan worshippers feel that they no longer have access to their site, or even if they have access, they're engaging in a, a type of spirit medium ritual while tourists are standing next to them taking pictures. And that, that leads to all sorts of tensions, as you can imagine. So I would say that in some cases, being listed or some of the more famous sites being listed as UNESCO World Heritage hasn't really led to major changes per se, but it's more functioned like a, a marker of excellence in a way. It's sort of a confirmation 
internationally of the outstanding universal value of Japanese culture, but at other sites it has actually given rise to uh, very real uh, uh, changes, including this example of, of mass tourism, how that affects a, a small worship site. So with that in mind, I'm kind of curious, who are the actors that are proposing these sites for heritage status? Is it the people who live and work in these temple grounds or managing these areas? Or is it the municipal government or is it the national government? And how much communication is there between these people? Yeah, that's a very good question. Eventually, it's the national government that has to apply at UNESCO, right? But first, it's the prefectural government that is involved with selecting these sites. Then they establish a committee and they have local committees, local education committees, these kyoiku iinkai that are involved. People who live around the site, for example, to what extent they are involved or not, this is also something that differs from place to place. But very often it's a, a municipality or it's a city that then comes with a proposal. Now, a religious sites, they may do this in collaboration with for example, temple or shrine priests. And there are some cases, there are some examples where a priests were involved in these processes, but this is not always the case. It can also be that the, a, a city says or a municipality says, okay, we have this site, we want to select it, uh, and they work on the proposal. And then this is selected by the prefecture government. So the exact sort of formalities of this, I'm not familiar with that myself, but ultimately it has to go to the national government, which then has to apply at UNESCO. So what you can't do if you're a group of local citizens, for example, and you say, okay, here we have this important natural site and we want to protect that. And you establish a committee and you write a, a proposal, you send it directly to UNESCO. It always has to be the member state uh, who applies for this. And that includes indigenous sites. It has to go through the national government. But of course, you need some sort of involvement on a local level. And what you see, so again, uh, the example of Seifa Utaki, that local residents initially, so I looked at some of these, some of the articles in a, like a, a local newspaper that initially uh, in the late 1990s, there was quite a bit of enthusiasm for this proposal and people celebrated when uh, the site was listed and then later opinions changed and especially as a result of large numbers of tourists and the tensions and so on and now many local residents actually regret this or, or and there are debates also then it's again the municipality who gets involved discussing also how can we improve the current situation and so on so to what extent religious actors are involved in the application that's Again, it's probably something that differs from case to case, but ultimately it has to go through the national government. So for these local actors who feel disillusioned after the um, heritage status has been confirmed, have there been any calls to reverse heritage status? Um, do you mean by the local residents or do you mean by UNESCO? By the local residents. Yeah, there's some people who say, I wish this had never been a, a World Heritage Site. And uh, look, we have these problems at the forest and uh, UNESCO should uh, remove this site from their list. There are, I think, as far as I know, two cases where actually sites were removed from the World Heritage List. And it, it really, that's not something uh, UNESCO does very easily, right? There is also, there is a list of World Heritage Sites in danger. Uh, there's in fact also a list of intangible heritage practices that are endangered. So, so, but even these 
Japanese sites, as far as I as far as I know, including the Okinawan ones, are not actually on the UNESCO list of World Heritage in danger. So unless actually the the whole site itself is threatened, for example, by big infrastructural project or something, then uh, it's very unlikely that a site would be removed from from the World Heritage list. And just because. And mass tourism in itself, this is, of course, a problem that at least prior to the pandemic that we saw also in many famous World Heritage listed old towns in Europe. Think of Venice, think of Dubrovnik, where mass tourism really threatened, in a way, the integrity of the site itself. Uh, And also in Asia, think of Hoi An in Vietnam or Luang Prabang in Laos. That in itself is a problem that we see in many different countries, and that is no incentive for UNESCO then to get involved. But it's important also to keep in mind that UNESCO is actually not involved with the daily management of the site. This is still the the local authorities. And people sometimes have somewhat unrealistic expectations of what UNESCO can do or how much they are in fact involved. Uh, Very much of, of heritage preservation is done by local authorities in collaboration with local residents, or maybe not so much in collaboration with local residents, but with local corporations, for example. And, uh, and UNESCO is involved in, uh, as an intergovernmental organization, involved in the process of listing these sites, but not so much in the management of it afterwards. That goes on to the next question quite nicely. In an early episode on Buddhism as lived religion in Japan, it was mentioned that heritage status does little to economically benefit temples in rural areas due to the lack of infrastructure to facilitate mass tourism. One reason is that heritage sites in Japan are expected to maintain themselves, receiving little funding from the Japanese Agency for Cultural Affairs. Many temples which might be worthy of heritage status are therefore abandoned as these communities die out and are reclaimed by nature. Do you think there is a relationship between the geographical location of a religious site and its likelihood in receiving heritage status in Japan? Yeah, um, it's interesting that you're referring to this earlier episode of your podcast, because that was Paulina Colata, and she's also actually one of the contributors to the edited volume, Sacred Heritage in Japan. And there she discusses the same topics that uh, she talked about with you, about heritage that's listed as at a prefectural level, but not at the national level, and certainly not at the UNESCO level, right? And Japan has a very elaborate system of also domestic heritage preservation with different categories and different ranks and so on. And in fact, some of this goes back to pre-war, even to Meiji period. And many of the sites that then are already listed as prefectural heritage or are on national uh, lists, then at some point also can get nominated to UNESCO for World Heritage status. But this is not necessarily always the case. And yeah, as, as, as you say, just because, you know, a, a temple or a statue or an old tree has that status, at least locally, it doesn't necessarily mean, or it comes with an obligation perhaps for those who own it to maintain it well, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they also get the funding for preservation, for maintenance, for repairs and so on. And even if you're listed as world heritage, that in itself, like it doesn't mean that UNESCO sends you uh, a, a big amount of money, but it might make it easier to get, for example, other sponsors, corporate sponsorship, for repairing a a roof of a temple, for example. So I do think there is a difference here between the thousands of 
local prefectural heritage sites or objects and the few who have that UNESCO brand, in a way, attached to them. Now about geographical location and its likelihood in receiving heritage status, when it comes, again, when it comes to prefectural heritage, that's something that's everywhere in the country. But also if you look at the sites in Japan that are actually well on the World Heritage List, then it's quite evenly sort of geographically distributed. And it seems that the Japanese government actually has had quite an active policy of not only getting temples in Kyoto and Nara, uh, but also including other prefectures. And so, for example, uh, industrial, modern industrial heritage from Kyushu that was listed uh, a couple of years ago, natural heritage sites in uh, the Ryukyu Islands or in Hokkaido or in Tohoku. And there seems to be, have been quite a, an active policy of, of trying to have this sort of spread out geographically. But of course, then some applications were not successful, right? So there was this one case of the Shikoku pilgrimage, and this is also one of the case studies that's that's discussed in our book. That's a chapter by Ian Reader, where they applied for world heritage status, but have not been successful, or not yet at least. And the, the chapter discusses some of the local dynamics and also this issue of getting some of the religious actors involved, and some of them were quite actively involved, but others opposed the application, right? So there were these internal divisions or internal disagreements. There's the case of the, the Christian sites in Nagasaki, that first time they applied, they did not receive World Heritage status, and then several years later, they reapplied, and then the second time they did get it. So I think in some respects, actually, you have the best chance to get through this, <laughs> this national uh, uh, competition first is to be a prefecture that doesn't yet have World Heritage sites, or not many, right? So one of the reasons that these tombs in Osaka Prefecture were nominated and were listed was that in contrast to other prefectures in the Kansai region, Osaka didn't have its own World Heritage Site yet. So it was this idea, now it's their turn. Because uh, uh, UN member states can only nominate one site per year, they implemented that rule uh, several years ago. So there's the internal competition in a way. I don't know if that's, that answers your question, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, it does. It goes on to the next question quite nicely again. So heritage has been recognized as a central part of the nation-building process, traditionally taking tangible sites and imbuing them with patriotic sentiment. Is heritageization an inevitably nationalist process, or are there examples of heritage in Japan which break this mold? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very, it's a very difficult question because it touches upon this, this issue of who owns the heritage, right? Is it the local community? Is it the nation? Or is it indeed a universal property in a way, as, as, as UNESCO uh, suggests? And it's quite clear in Japan that many of the sites that are listed are somehow, um, and this, also the narratives surrounding those sites are placed within a kind of, there is a kind of a national Japanese framework. So of course, a site like Mount Fuji is quite obviously and has long been, also before it became World Heritage Site, has long been a symbol of, the, 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 of Japan as a nation, of the Japanese nation state. Even a, uh, the Christian sites in Nagasaki, which quite obviously belong to a religious minority that has a, a very ambivalent relationship historically with 
the state. Think of the persecution of Christians in the Edo period, but also even in, in modern times, that is somehow framed within a, a narrative of uh, Japanese uh, religious uh, diversity and sort of inclusive framework. And then the question is, uh, indigenous sites, for example, I mentioned the sites of the Ryukyu kingdom. If you go to Seifa Otaki, you're shown documentary videos that at the a visitor center that uh, both show some of the cultural otherness of the Ryukyu kingdom, but also explain this in terms of Ryukyu Shinto, which is explains the kind of pure original form of Japanese Shinto, which is historically very problematic. So even the otherness of the Ryukyu kingdom in some ways is incorporated within that framework of diverse multicultural Japan. In Shiretoko in Hokkaido, that's also a World Heritage Site that is a natural heritage site that's listed because of its biodiversity. But the fact that this is also a sacred or this area contains several sacred sites for the indigenous Ainu uh, was not actually part of the nomination narrative there. So Ainu were actually excluded from that process. So would it be possible to subvert this? This the, the kind of the kind of national framework. I think that's very difficult because there's always these state actors who are involved. Uh, but of course, it doesn't mean that local residents can't you know take advantage of heritage status, for example, through uh, setting up businesses to to cater to tourists or, or, or something. But there's very limited space. I have the feeling for 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 these kind of alternative narratives. So, would heritage status? Would it, for example, could it help to to protect a site? That's another question. Right now, uh, Japan's been trying to get a number of natural parks in the Ryukyu Islands also listed as World Heritage. It has to be approved by IUCN, International what's that? Union, I think, but that's for the conservation of nature. And that was rejected. And one of the reasons for this is the Yanbaru Forest. So this forest in the northern part of Okinawa, which until recently was used as a training area by the U.S. military and is very heavily polluted. And then there were these plans, or they are actually in the process of constructing several new bases in that region. There's the Henoko base, there are the helipads in Takai, and then having all these big military helicopters, you know, landing and so on might have a negative impact, as you can imagine, on, for example, local bird life and so on. Uh, so there's been this debate among Okinawan activists. Should we support the heritage application of Yambaru Forest as it might be a way to prevent the construction of these, these military facilities? But others say, no, but once it's been approved as World Heritage, then actually we can't do anything about it anymore, right? Then they can just continue and then it actually serves to almost uh, to justify the, the construction of these bases because it's a way of saying, look, we have these military bases and they're right next to World Heritage listed natural park and those two can go hand in hand. So there are all these debates then by, by local activists of whether World Heritage status can be used to actually protect these sites and to prevent the construction, in this case, of military facilities. But I think I think the space for shall we say, for subverting the official narrative or for appropriating this. I think that space is very limited, at least in Japan. It may be a bit different in, in other countries. 
Yeah, I think it's quite easy as a tourist visiting these sites to forget about the uh, very political nature of heritage and heritageization. Thank you for answering all my questions, Ike. It's been a real pleasure. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what projects you're currently working on? Yes, um, I'm currently working on a project that's called Whales of Power. That is an ERC-funded project. So I got a starting ground from the European Research Council. Sorry, the full title is Whales of Power, Aquatic Mammals, Devotional Practices and Environmental Change in Maritime East Asia. So this is a project that I started in 2019. It's five years, so it's until, in principle, until the end of 2023. And it's a group project, so I have three PhD candidates and, and one postdoc and myself and then some visiting researchers. And we're looking at ritual practices, so-called folk religious or popular religious practices, in contemporary, also a bit sort of historically, but mostly it's, it's ethnographic. So in contemporary East Asia, and especially those that are related to the sea, to maritime religion, and then to animals. And the animals that we're looking at are marine mammals. So there are whales, there are dolphins, there are some other kinds of marine mammals. And my own uh, work package within this project looks at whales both living and dead and the spirits of those whales in ritual practices both in Japan and in Vietnam so in Japan as you may know there are various there are matsuri that involve or that refer to whaling or have whaling reenactments as part of the matsuri or the Shinto festivals but there are also Buddhist memorial rituals kuyo for the spirits, not only of whales that were hunted, but also whales that beached or stranded and, and died. And then historically, there have also been regions in Japan where people did not engage in whaling, but where uh, whales were seen as the embodiment of maritime deities like Ibisu. So these are some of the issues that I'm looking at. And especially that last thing, that the whales are seen as the embodiment of maritime deities, this is very similar to worship traditions in South and Central Vietnam where whales are worshipped by fishing communities as a divine uh, maritime god, Om Nam Hai, the, the lord of the South Sea, or, or Ka Om, Mr. or Lord Fish, as they, as they call him, uh, and where people believe that whales, or not just believe, have actually experienced that, that uh, they were saved when they had shipwreck and they were saved by whales. And when whales die on the beach, for example, they're given uh, funeral ceremonies and, and, and their, their temples and their, their festivals and so on. So what I'm doing in this project is I'm comparing some of these ritual traditions, both in Vietnam and in Japan. And then I'm looking at ways in which these traditions are responding to and are affected by ecological change and also social economic change. So, so it's a comparative project. So we have people looking in different parts of uh, East and Southeast Asia. A postdoc who's doing research in Indonesia, another PG candidate in Vietnam, a PG candidate who's currently doing fieldwork in Okinawa, is doing research on the dugong, a marine mammal there and, and historically seen as sacred uh, and its contemporary significance. So this is uh, something I'm working on right now. We've had some challenges, as you can imagine, with the pandemic, not being able to or having to postpone fieldwork. But hopefully, uh, hopefully that will be possible again next year. Uh, and I'm um, happy, uh, maybe at some point, uh, uh, we can do another talk more specifically about whales and about this project. Yeah, we'll definitely have to re revisit that at some point, I think. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. 
Great. Well, I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to that project. Thank you for answering everything. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for this talk. You can find the link to Ica's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor Wolfram Manzenreiter of the University of Vienna to discuss Japanese diasporas, taking a look at what can be learned from diaspora communities both in the millions, such as those of Brazil and the USA, and in the thousands in areas like Mexico, Paraguay, and Canada. We will also consider the connection between these communities and their indigenous roots in Japan, as well as the relationship between historic Japanese migration and the strategies of the Japanese Empire. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.